following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 13. Psalm 13, we're not in James this morning. You're turning there. Uh, In 1982... Columbia Pictures put out, uh, produced a feel-good, rags-to-riches story about a little girl, a little redhead girl. This little girl uh, put a smile on your face and a song in your heart. Uh, Even if you've never seen the movie, uh, you've probably learned from this little girl that some of us live the hard-knocked life. And you get it. And you know that, you know, if you just keep your chin up and remember uh, that you're never fully dressed without a smile, you'll be okay. Probably uh, most of, you know, the most famous of Annie's hymns teaches us that the sun will come out tomorrow. It's a new day. Like there's, there's hope in the future. The prospects are unknown. So it, the, the possibilities are endless. Who knows? Something absolutely wonderful might happen to you. Like a billionaire fall in paternal love with this gorgeous little redhead girl that sings all the time. Who knows? That could happen to you. Who knows, if you just wait till tomorrow, you may get everything that you want from this life. Every single want, it may come to you. You may get everything here and good fortune just might smile down on you if you just keep a positive attitude. Uh, If you just keep this attitude up and smile regardless of reality, good things will come to you. I would plead with you not to take the theology or the philosophy of life from Annie. Please don't do that. There is no hope in what she has for us and what she's telling us to do. Um, she may share in some of the common experiences, understanding the difficulty of life and the struggles that happen and orphandom. She, she gets that. But as far as her outlook on the way life is and what you ought to do about it and her approach to getting ahead, I'm sorry to tell you, but it will leave you utterly disappointed. We all know that a smile can't save us. Um, A positive attitude really can't take the bitterness of life away. A chin-up, you know, can't heal brokenness and pain caused by the ravages of sin. It can't. And although not many of us, if we're honest, we don't really abide by Annie's theology. We get that. I think there's probably very few in this room that really actually abide by that. I would fear that sometimes Christians take Annie's methodology and just put at the center of it Jesus. And they think that if we do this stuff with the center on Jesus, then we're right. And we should look at each day the same way. The sun's going to come out tomorrow because Jesus put it there. Like when the trials of various kinds come, I just stick out my chin and grin and say, Jesus. And if I do that, then it's all good. I mean, like a Christian should face each day with a pep talk that everything is going to be okay and right and all the bad stuff will go away if we just stay positive and have this Christian mission of Jesus coming over us in a a good attitude. And that sounds good. I, I mean, none of us would deny that Jesus is the power to save us from a hard day and the struggles of life. In fact, we would say this is a good thing to promote and proclaim Jesus Christ. Uh... That sounds good, and this kind of approach may sound good to some people, and maybe you're used to this. And then to others, it just sounds not so great, and then there's to others, it sounds absolutely terrible, because it doesn't jive with reality at all. 
and you know what your life is like. And it would be ridiculous to do this. This method of like jumping straight to a positive you know, attitude and declaring everything is okay in Jesus sounds right. It sounds like maybe this is where we'd, we'd, be, we'd shoot on biblically, like, hey, just remember Jesus and you're going to be good to go. But when you go through deep waters and you and your family struggle or you struggle with pain and, as James puts it, various trials, we kind of understand that the methodology of Annie plus Jesus just really isn't honest because it doesn't answer the struggles that are going on. What good does it do to stick your chin out and smile when your heart is so broken and the hurt is so thick that the smile itself would be a lie of what's going on inside of you? King David, the one that received the promise of eternal kingship, the one that had the ultimate blessing of God in his life and his family's lineage, gave us a different way to approach these struggles. He gave us a gift. He actually gave us several gifts in regard to this subject. He gave us lament psalms. The Old Testament is filled with joyous songs, high points and praise and glorious singing, but it's also containing dark and painful, anxious writing that tries desperately to make sense of what's going around in life's circumstances. That's what we're going to get today. We're going to get a look at Psalm 13, and I believe that after we go through James, what happens is we hear the command to count it all joy, and we agree with it. We're like, yeah, we should count it all joy. But we find it frustrating actually trying to implement this action, to count it joy in the midst of struggle. We believe that we ought to do it, it, we, we consider it joy. It's a good thing, but we have no idea what it looks like because it's just so hard. Does it look like Annie's response? I don't think so. I'd like to read Psalm 13 for you. I want you to listen. You can follow along if you'd like. We're going to stop then. We're going to pray. And then we're going to talk about this lament psalm because I think it's a really needful piece of Scripture for us. It's something we don't talk about very often. We don't know what to do when we get to laments. It's kind of weird stuff. Today we're going to tackle some of that and understand it. So let me read all of Psalm 13 for us and then we'll pray. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice, because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, because he has dealt bountifully with me. Let's pray. God, we come to you asking you to go deep into our hearts, remove the idols, and speak to us today. I pray for faith for each one that sits in this room. Would your grace be on them so that they might trust you? Not what they can see, but they would trust you. I pray that David would teach us today and we would learn from this psalm. I thank you for your everlasting, steadfast love to us. In Jesus' name, amen. I am going to read this psalm again, uh, but I'm going to add a few details for us. 
Because I want you to feel this song. You heard me correctly. I want you to feel this song. Psalms are poems and songs meant to be sung, meant to be heard, meant to flow out of a heart. They're not propositions. They're not like something that we build our theology about we move these pieces around. They're not just statements for analyzation. These poems and songs are written to express what's going on inside of a believer. Oftentimes we consider the scriptures kind of a, a place to turn for instruction. And that's right, and that's good. But this morning, that's not what, exactly what's happening. I will instruct, but I want you to see that this is not just written to us, it is written for us. There's a big difference. I'm not just talking about that, you know, this for this. I'm saying there's a big difference in that it's not just something that you are to receive to you today. The psalm is something for you to use and to feel and to pray. This is something in the Psalter that helps us to interact with God when all around us does not make sense. Oftentimes we consider the scriptures a good place to go but for, for, for training, but I want you to feel this today. So I'm going to paint it a little bit different here. There are biblical expressions here that you'll see that we're not comfortable with and we don't exactly know what to do with. I want you to picture this. I want you to picture a man inside of a deep, dark cave, perhaps even a dungeon at the bottom of a castle. It's dark, it's cold, it's wet, there's no food. The enemy has captured or forced him into this position where there's no escape. The person is trapped, chained to the wall with fetters. The only thing that's there to light is a, a, a terrible light flickering once in a while so you can see the squalor that's around this person. Their utterly desperate position. His situation has gone from bad to desperate, like feeling of no hope. He has no food left. He knows that he is supposed to be living like a king, but he finds himself in the darkest place he's ever been in his entire life. And in the midst of this, here are the words. How long, O Lord? Will you forget me down in this dungeon, in this cave, forever? Do, do you not see me here, God? Like, do you, do you see what I'm seeing around me? How long will you hide your face, your face from me? Didn't you bless your people back in Numbers 6.24 and you said that you'd bless your people and make your face shine upon them? That does not look what I'm, like, what I'm experiencing around me right now. How long must I take counsel in my own soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? Will you really leave me here to sort this out on my own? Is that what you've left me to do? I thought that I was supposed to take counsel in you, Lord. I thought that you would be the one that gave me understanding and wisdom and kindness. Will I forever deal with this on my own? Will I wet my pillow with tears because of my sorrow? How long, how long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Is this the, you know, the kind of defeat going on? Is this going to last forever? Where my, where my enemy understands and he gloats over top of me? He knows exactly that I'm in the right place, that he wants me. I'm trapped. I cannot succeed. He has already captured me, and now he mocks to the court of my position and his position over top of me. This man then turns, stops the questions of how long, how long, how long, how long, and he says this to God, consider, 
and answer me, O Lord my God. I know you can see into this cave of suffering. I know you know this situation. I know that all is laid bare before you, so please look at me. Please look at me and answer my cry to you. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. I'm on the brink. I'm calling out to you knowing that if you don't act, I am going to die. I know that you are the king of life, but the whole situation around me reeks of death. Lest my enemy say, I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. I've seen my adversaries. They are brutish mockers that say there is no God. They are fools. Would you have these ones be the victors? Do you really want me to be able to say that they had victory over me? Your representative? But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Let's start in the first four verses here. Does anyone see a problem with these first four verses? Or let me ask a different question. Is anyone uncomfortable with the way that David speaks to the Lord? I am. David is impatient. David questions God. He has no vision of God in the midst of darkness. It's almost like he totally lacks faith. He accuses God of forgetfulness. David accuses God of abandonment. David accuses God of not fulfilling his promises. David accuses God of losing the battle against his enemies. David accuses God of not providing counsel and comfort. David actually even threatens the prospect that these enemies would gloat. And he almost kind of puts God to the test saying, consider an answer, lest I die or my enemies prevail or they gloat. We've got to ask the question, is David right? Is, he, is it okay for him to ask these questions of God? Verses 1 through 4, is this sin in David's life? Is that what we're seeing on display here? I don't know how to answer you perfectly, but I can say this, I don't think so. And hear me out. Our question about whether this is sin or not, these first four verses, his questioning of God, really misses the entire point of what's going on in this passage. God's word includes these types of prayers and messages and longings because they are important in the Christian experience. No doubt, you in this room have had some of these thoughts. David is wrestling with reality. He's not in his ivory tower thinking about God and all the wonders of God. He's dealing with the reality of sin and struggle and pain around him. He knows the promises of God. He knows that God has made his plan and that he is almighty and that he is sovereign. But now the question comes, but is he good? I know you're almighty. I know you're sovereign overall. I believe all that. But look at what's going on. How could this God be good? How is it possible that God would allow this kind of stuff to happen to me? We know, and we sing loudly, brothers and sisters, he is sovereign over us, and we mean it. We believe he's in control, and he's able. But if that's true, why this suffering? And if we're okay with a little bit of suffering, we then say, how long will this suffering go on? How long, O oh Lord? Why would God allow me and those who I love so much 
to be in the midst of this terrible situation? Why would God allow, and I'll say one more, why would he ordain these terrible things? Is God really all-powerful? Is he really in control of your relationships, of your life, the things that have happened to you? Is he actually all-powerful? If he is, we need to somehow make sense of these terrible things that have happened around us. Like David, then, we wrestle with reality. I stated earlier that I'm really uncomfortable with the way that David asks these questions and kind of calls God to action, but I don't think he's wrong. Furthermore, he's not alone. David's not the only one that has done this. In Job 3, we have a very similar set of despairing words, actually throughout the whole book of Job. But I'm going to take a few from Job 3. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, let the day perish on which I was born. Why did I not die at birth, come out from the womb and expire? Or why was I not as a hidden stillborn, as infants who never see the light? There the wicked cease from troubling, and there the weary are at rest. Why is light given to him who is in misery and life to the bitter in soul who long for death? But it comes not, and dig for more, for at more than for hidden treasure, who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they find the grave. Later in Job 21, he says, Is my complaint against a man? No. Why should I not then be impatient? Look at me and be appalled. Lay your hand over your mouth. When I remember, I am dismayed and shuddering seizes my flesh. Job calls out to God, what's the deal? What is going on with all the stuff you've ripped from me? My whole family crushed, all my stuff gone. And he calls out to God in the midst of suffering. And what does James tell us about him, though? He calls him one who was steadfast. Is Job wrong? How about Jeremiah? Jeremiah also calls out to God in his despair. In chapter 20, he says a few words here. He says, O Lord, you have deceived me, and I was deceived. You are stronger than I, and you have prevailed. I have become a laughingstock all the day. Everyone mocks me. For whenever I speak and cry out and shout, violence and destruction, for the word of the Lord has become for me a reproach and derision all day long. Cursed be the day on which I was born. The day when my mother bore me, let it not be blessed. Why did I come out from the womb to see toil and sorrow and spend my life, my days in shame? If you finish the book of Jeremiah, you realize that Jeremiah's next writing is the book of Lamentations. It's a pretty terrible little book. It causes us to see evil, to feel the incredible weight of pain, sorrow, all heaped upon Israel, God's people. At the end of the book, Jeremiah says these groaning words. Why do you forget us? Why do you forsake us so many days? The writer of Ecclesiastes he knows it well also. He says, and he sees that terror comes to those who do good and to those who do bad. In 9.2 he says, it is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and to the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. 
and he who swears as he who shuns an oath. God, does it really matter if we are your people or not? It seems like everything doesn't matter. Jesus, our great Savior, understood lament also. He quotes Psalm 22. On the cross, our Savior hangs, fully human, understanding what it means. As the Hebrew Hebrew says, a sympathetic high priest, experiencing the crushing blow of these men as he prepares to take the weight of God's wrath. On the cross, he calls out to the Father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus understands lament and the questioning. David's words in Psalm 13, 1 through 4 are right words. They are words of faith. These are words of sorrow and lament, and they show us that David doesn't have a robotic or a coercive obedience, as though if he just slaps the grin on and says, Jesus, everything's going to be okay. He knows what's going on around him, and, and he is struggling. It's a wrestling, real faith that demands God act. It is a struggle of faith that walks a long road of steadfastness to eventually come to an end being found in Him. Sorrow and pain, questioning, accusing, and even demanding that God come to action is all part of the walk of faith. If you look at your English Bible, you'll see verse 1, 3, and 6 calls out the Lord. And you'll see it's capitalized, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. This is Yahweh. This is the covenant-keeping God. This is why this is set out here. And David knows that well. He doesn't just call him God. He references him as Lord on purpose here. This is the steadfast God, the one that has steadfast love for his people. David is calling on God to be true to his covenant. David is not mocking. He is not forsaking God. He is crying out to him in his desire to have the eyes of faith come to fruition and actually experience God's salvation. He can't see anything in this darkness, and he is struggling. He's human. He wants God to act. And kind of strangely to us, this psalmist's faith is not a dead one. He actually does something about what's going on. As he trusts God, he calls out and says, what's going on around me? It doesn't jive with what you said is what should happen to me. So I call out to you. Will you be faithful? Will you care for me? Will you counsel me? The laments are these calls and understanding brokenness and pain and evil and sorrow. And it calls on God to make these things right. This should not surprise us, though, because James just taught us this at the end of the book. You remember this? If you're suffering, what should you do? Pray. If you're cheerful, sing praise to God. He taught us about prayer. Remember this? He said the prayer of a righteous person, in other words, one that has a covenant relationship with God, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. This is a prayer cried out by David to his God for help. He is brutally honest with God, something I think we can all probably learn quite a bit from. How about you? How do you treat God when you speak to Him? I think a lot of us think that we should speak reverently only, and that we should dress up what we're actually feeling and thinking inside and present the correct words to Him, as though He can't see into your brain 
and into your heart and knows how you feel and knows how you think and knows the things that you tell your neighbor and the things that you struggle with. And somehow we want to scrub ourselves up so we can get to the place where we ask God uh, for the missionaries and for our body and to help other people not be sick. Those are all fine prayers. But do you think that God does not know what's going on inside of you? Does he not know your situation? Does he not know the depths of sorrow that you hold? Do you think that he doesn't care? Do you think that if you complain about the situation, maybe to your spouse or to a friend, but not to God, and that you kind of like internalize this, and you don't like speak about it, somehow that makes you a better compliant, respectful Christian? Let me talk to the couples in here for a minute. You should be honest with one another. The same is asked here from God, that we would be honest. And guess what? There's a lot of ugliness and sin inside of our lives. And what we need is Jesus to take care of that sin. We need to be honest with God. David is. So I call you brothers and sisters. Be honest. Talk about the truth. In your sin and your struggle, as you confess to one another your sin and ask one another for forgiveness and ask one another to pray for you and say, I know this is sin. I don't want to do it. I hate it. I want Jesus to conquer it. Would you pray for me, brother or spouse or sister or children? We must be honest with God. and We must be honest with one another. You can't wash yourself up and prepare to pray for, to God. First of all, praise God, if you're a believer, you've already been cleansed from all sin by the blood of Jesus. But second, in our continual walk in progressive sanctification, it is through the means of confession and prayer and trusting Him that He makes us more like Jesus Christ. So, it's a very simple call. Talk to Him. We're talking about trust-filled conversation with our God. Use your own words of pain and sorrow. Call him in faith to act. As a creature, knowing that, call to him the creator to act. Call him to his steadfast love. The first four verses here are an example to the beleaguered Christian who is hurting. And I know that characterizes many of you. I know because I'm your pastor. Our other elders know what's going on in your lives. And we probably don't know the depths of it. But we know the pain and the heartache that's going on. Cry to God. He cares for you so deeply. But you and I know that the psalm doesn't end here. We are not left in the pit. Like Joseph was drawn out of the pit where his brothers could have killed him and experienced, instead he experienced God's hand of mercy and continued on in his life. We too experience the goodness and mercy of God through these words and through our, get this word, ultimate salvation. Let me read verse 5 and 6. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. In all the pain, in all the conflict, in all the darkness, David is reminded of the steadfast love of a covenant-keeping God. He brings to mind all the wondrous and loving and good deeds that God has done. He remembers when God rescued them from Egypt. He remembers the, the provisions of the manna and the quail and the water all the times throughout all the desert and the wilderness. 
He remembers the beauty of the law that was given at Sinai so the people might know their God. He remembers the fact that they are in a land that has been conquered that was the result of promises kept to Abraham. God never went back on what he said. He was always good. Always was he good. And so David knows that he can trust this God. He can trust in his character. For, by the way, it's his character that actually defines what steadfast love is. We would not know what steadfast love, covenant-keeping love was like unless God showed us what that was like. And so we say, God, you said you're this. We've seen this to be true. So we're going to call ourselves, even in our struggle and our pain, to believe that. Again, I can't help but say at Mark 9, the guy that says, I believe, but help my unbelief. God never goes back on his promises. He can be trusted. And even in the midst of all the pain and sorrow, David could count it all joy. He says so. Look what he says. My heart shall rejoice or shall count it joy in your salvation. This is not a happy-go-lucky, anti-type positivity. It is the truth that in God we have promises that will be kept by a steadfast, steadfast loving God and bring us to ultimate salvation. His timeline may not look like yours and mine. And I want to stop there for a moment and think about this. When we read this, we see six short verses, right? We say, okay, he had this issue. He kind of talks about it. He called out to God, but then he kind of preaches the gospel to himself and he's back on track. It seems so easy. I don't think that's what's going on here at all. I think we see the summation of probably either months or years of struggle. And it's only now, as perspective is gained, that he can say these things and eventually say, I will trust in the steadfast love of the Lord. Because he knows God to be true. And he knows the results that God will bring. Ultimate salvation. We're not talking again about a few days. We're probably talking about a sustained period of struggle. What many of you are going through, or will go through. He's talking about a process in which he has learned to lament and pray, and trust God. David understands that he may not be released from this cave, this dungeon, anytime soon. He knows that. But that when he considers his position before God, he can praise. He can even sing and rejoice in God. Kind of reminds me of Paul and Silas in Acts 16. If you remember this, some terrible stuff really happened to them as they're obeying God and preaching the gospel. The people seize him, them, they drag them into the marketplace. They accuse them. They rip off all of their clothes. They get canes and rods and beat them, the text says, with many blows. Then they're thrown into prison, fettered to the wall in the stocks. Sound familiar? <laughs> like a dungeon, like a cave where there's no hope? Now, we don't get all the details, and I'm not saying this is what's happening here, but I, I doubt that Paul and Silas were some sort of weird, smiling duo that laughed every time they received a blow from their persecutors. But look what the text says next, or listen for a moment. When the Christian's overall response gets to this, in verse 25, we find them praying and singing hymns to God because they know their ultimate salvation. Their surroundings stink. <laughs> they might die. They might be killed, they might be banished, they're not sure what will happen. 
but they know their ultimate end in Christ. And so they have hope. And so they can sing. David knew the same thing was true. He knew that ultimate salvation was sure in Christ. His course was set. His God had promised him eternal blessing, and that was enough. How can David sing? I mean, look at this phrase. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Is, is God only sovereign? Does he ever act on one of his attributes and not all the rest at the same time? Do you think he puts some of it down and then picks another one up to be himself over here? Absolutely not. Our God is consistent and whole. He is then the father of lights, giving every good and every perfect gift. Brothers and sisters, our God is not only good, it's way bigger than that. He has dealt bountifully with us. Don't forget all that he has done, even just simply for humanity. Do you realize the common grace that the whole world isn't crushed in a moment? Do you realize that the, the, the rain falls on the just and the unjust? The whole world experienced the common grace of God? But that's not all. You and I were cosmic traitors. You and I were created to find him most valuable and glorify him, perfect fellowship with him. But instead, we slapped him in the face with our rebellion, with our disregard for his holy character. And for us ending to say, no, I'm God, and I'm going to choose what I want. I am on the throne of my heart. And in our ignorance, our rebellion, our stupidity, we choose our own way, and we sprinted toward hell. But God, who is rich in mercy, called dead men to life. It's not just that he gave common grace. He sent Jesus so that we might have new life. Jesus came, lived obediently, died, and received the punishment that is truly yours and mine. The wrath of God poured out on Jesus. He gives Jesus that we might have forgiveness of sins. But that's not all. We didn't come to a place of neutrality. He gave us the righteousness of Christ. Do you realize that you are now called the righteous, that you can claim that promise that James has about prayer, that your righteous prayer as a righteous person in Christ works because God has made you righteous? In Jesus, he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. We are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. He has not only wiped away our sin, he has given us his righteousness. He has given us real life. You see, our God has dealt not only good with us, he's dealt, he's dealt bountifully with us. His great steadfast love never fails. He is good. Although your circumstances show you, yeah, he might be in control, but this does not look good. I promise you, he is good. Friends, Perhaps you're here today and you do not know this God. You don't know what I'm talking about or you think I'm weird for this. That's fine. I have no problem with that. I'm very concerned though. I want you to know that first of all, I love you and that you need to listen. Please listen. Jesus has given his life for you that you might repent and believe and trust him. The call is yours. I call to you then as Jesus does. Repent and believe the gospel. 
Your life is worth it. May I plead with you to consider your position. The wrath of God is against you. And all the despair that we talked about this morning, it rightfully is owned by you. And it will end in your total destruction and your sprinting to hell. Trust Jesus. If you don't know what I'm talking about, please talk to one of our sons, the elders, or someone that brought you to here today that's a Christian. You need to know this more than anything else. Brother and sister, believer, friend, remember that our God is good. Remember that he gave himself for you. Remember that he gave his life over, understanding exactly what it would mean to live here as a human being as he cries out to his God, have you forsaken me? feeling every bit of the pain that we understand as human beings and in fact bearing that pain for us. Friend and believer, use this song, use this lament as we call to God, knowing that our families, the things around us, the pain that we feel physically, spiritually, our hearts, all these different things can only be righted if God will act. So call on him. These are right words for us. Use these laments, remembering the steadfast love of our God. As we trust, we do not forsake or mock God. We ask him to act, trusting that he will do what is right. I'm going to finish by reading Lamentations 3. Jared read it for us this morning, but I think you'll be able to enjoy it a little more. In the midst of struggle, let me read these verses and then we'll pray. Jeremiah says, Remember my affliction and my wanderings. The wormwood and the gall, my soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord, he is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we call to you to act. We call to you, as James has taught us also, to trust and to count it joy, whether the situation goes away right now or not. Would you build steadfastness in us? Would you build faith in us? We believe, help our unbelief. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. Oh, we thank you for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is so glorious. Without him, we have nothing. We thank you for your faithfulness, your steadfast love. You are so good and you can be trusted. God, help us to see past the day-to-day. And may we, may we trust you. We look to you, Jesus. It's in your name.